0: Good morning. We have two scripture reading. We're going to, go to Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 through 3 and then we're going to move to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 through 14. Isaiah chapter 60 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We continue in our study of Matthew's gospel and come, at least fortuitously, I would think providentially, to uh, the appropriate text for Epiphany, uh, the first Sunday of Epiphany, which is Matthew chapter 2, this account of the wise men, the coming of the magi. So, would you look with me at these opening 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. There are so many questions that we'd love to have answered about this text, questions that in the stories told at Christmas uh, are sometimes answered even though they have no biblical warrant. For example, we'd love to know what kind of star this was. All kinds of speculation. News magazines still sometimes have people declare that this was a a lining up of constellations or a new star of some sort or some have suggested a comet. But that flashes through the night. I mean, all the suggestions, here's the… you want to know the answer? We don't know. We don't have a clue. We don't even know how many wise men there were. We're not told. We're just told that they brought three gifts. And so, we always assume that, well, there must have been three, each one brought his own gift. But maybe that's true. We don't know. Uh, We don't know how old Jesus was. Now, they were still in Bethlehem, they hadn't yet returned to… Joseph's home in Nazareth. So we assume that he was still fairly young, but they obviously weren't still in the stable. I mean, they were in a home. And so maybe they'd gone back to visit relatives. Maybe he was a little older. We don't know. There's so much that we just don't know, but it doesn't matter. We're not told because none of those questions would yield an answer that has anything to do with what we're being taught in this text. These magi, translated wise man, graciously translated wise man, Uh, because magi actually is the word from which we get magician. And these guys were obviously astrologers. They were trying to find God in the stars. So, uh, these were guys that would have been seen as a bunch of wealthy pagans on a religious quest by those true believers in Israel. And they come and go in 12 verses, and we never hear of them again, and yet all these years later we're still talking about them. Why? Because they teach us several profound lessons about God and about the quest that God has set for every one of us, whether Jew or Gentile. It's striking to me, first, what, what we're taught about God. It's amplifying everything that we saw in chapter 1 in Jesus' family tree, when we saw over and over and over Jesus coming from people whom we would have considered beyond the pale, whom their neighbors and friends and family may have considered beyond the pale. The last people we would have expected God to choose to bring the Redeemer into the world are people in Jesus' family tree, just remarkable, and we spent time studying. I just learned this morning of a whole number of other churches doing it, so I guess the Lord wanted His people to be in Matthew 1 this uh, Advent season. But We see the same thing by the fact that God in His grace revealed Himself to these pagan magician astrologers because they weren't satisfied to try to manipulate nature to get what they desired. They were looking for the God who'd made all of this. They wanted to know what it was all about. And so, you can trace God's grace in drawing them through the three ways that God draws most people. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner pointed this out. I'd never really noticed it in this order before, but in something that he wrote, he pointed this out, and, and it really just arrested me. I thought, that's so beautiful. The way that we usually are drawn to God, unless we come from a wonderful Christian family that's taught us and catechized us early, is first through God's revelation in nature. The heavens are telling the glory of God, says the psalmist. The skies are proclaiming the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. Paul in Romans 1 said that there is enough given us just in the universe around us that we should know that there is a God who made all this, a God of power whom we should be seeking with all our hearts. They were seeking with all their heart. And so, as they followed what God was revealing to them in nature, they came not first to Jesus. This was what Bruner pointed out. I hadn't thought of this, but it's so beautiful because it's so true and emblematic. They, came, they went to Jerusalem first and said, where's the one who's born? King of the Jews. We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. And what do they do? They send for the Scriptures. And they come, and they open up the prophet and say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because this is what the prophet wrote. Nature's book takes us to God's book, God's Word. The revelation of God in nature must always take us to the written Word of God. But that in itself is not enough, brothers and sisters. I meet people who are profound Bible students constantly studying, but seem to have no knowledge of the Lord. It's all doctrine and everything laid out neatly and systems, but no joy and wonder and transformation. The Scriptures sent them to Bethlehem to meet Jesus. And it was when they met him that they were overwhelmed with joy. So there are four things that I want us to note this morning about our journey. And the first is this. In this particular quest, this one quest, the value, the worth of the quest is absolutely dependent upon the worth of the goal. Now that is not true of most of the journeys that we make in life. One of the wonderful lessons of getting old is that basically most of the things that happened to me in my life happened while I thought I was on my way to do something else. Um, And and you discover that, you know, we, we set goals, we go after something, but We don't know where we're going to end up and it's the journey we often say you know it's the journey that matters it's all about the journey not about getting there and that's certainly true of many things in life and it you know if you love being outdoors as much as i do you go up to the mountains it's not particularly where you're going to go it's just getting into the mountains it's being up there any season hiking around i love this time of year when the leaves are down when partly because I tend to have places to myself, most people, others aren't crazy enough to want to go out, but also because, well, in my neck of the woods, down in uh, the Smoky Mountains, uh, the bears have gone to bed, uh, the, the rattlesnakes have gone to bed, and, and the bugs have gone somewhere, uh, I guess, to hell to torment people or something, but uh, they're not in the mountains. at that. that so, but I love it also because with the leaves down, you see the quiddity, the thing itself. You see the, the shape of the mountain. Anyway, that's not fun. But all seasons, but it's the journey that you're on. But I was going home to see my family for the holidays, and I enjoy that drive down 81. But if I had decided to head north toward New York, Uh, I never would have gotten there. I might have had great adventures and encountered interesting things, but I would not have reached my destination. This quest after the living God, you can't just head off in any direction. You can't just listen to any teacher. You can't just say, if I'm sufficiently sincere. No, no. God is revealing himself to every person. He's showing us with the light of nature and with the moral imperative within that should, ought, that makes us realize that we are broken sinners and don't even live up to our own standards. In all these ways, God is showing us our need of Him. And so on this quest, we need to be clear what it is that we're seeking after, and that's why not all paths do lead to the same place. Religions that focus on nothingness, like Buddhism and Hinduism, on achieving nothingness, finally getting free of it all, and no longer being, are certainly not going to lead you in a resurrected body, in a new heaven, a new earth, into a living relationship with God, and so on, any religion that Basically all other religions than Christianity are religions where we have to save ourselves. They tell us how to save ourselves. And you're never going to get there because we cannot save ourselves. Remember hearing the testimony of a pastor who had uh, been on vacation with his family. He was sailing and uh, went into port somewhere down in the Caribbean. And, uh, Got to know a bunch of people on the next boats. They invited him to a party, and as he was leaving, he had a great time. And someone called and said, "What do you do?" And he said, "Well, I'm a pastor." And and so it was like the old E. F. Hutton ad. everybody stopped talking, everybody's leaning <laughs> in. And so the guy said, "Well, why should I believe in Christianity rather than any other religion?" And you know, how do how do you like that for a you know elevator talk? But God inspired him in that moment. He said, every other religion is spelled D-O, do. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. That's it. What quest are you on this morning? What really is your life journey? Because every person born into this world only has one hope. There is only one final destiny that is new life. That's the first point. In this most important quest, the destination matters ultimately. The second is, if you're on this quest, and every one of us is, whether we know it or not, we're either headed in the right direction or we're not. But it's costly. You've got to be willing to leave some things behind. These were wealthy, we know that they, these were prestigious pagans because otherwise they never would have gotten an interview with King Herod. They show up in town and King Herod lets them come and interviews them. They obviously came with, you know, all the right looks and money and uh, However they presented themselves, they were people of power, and yet they had left everything behind. We don't know where they were from, somewhere in the east. Traditionally people think Persia, present-day Iran, we don't know. But they had journeyed with money through areas where robbers loved (laughs) to stop you and strip you and leave you at the side of the road. And yet they'd left their safety, their power, their prestige, the place where they had their titles, and they'd come into someone else's kingdom where if they said or did the wrong thing, they could be cast cast aside. Following Jesus is costly. It is the most joyful thing in the world, but it's costly. Those of you who have Well, not even just high-level athletes. Those of you who've been involved in any athletic endeavors know that it is costly. You have to change the way that you eat, the way that you sleep, the way that you train if you're going to be good. If you're in any great endeavor, it is costly. But in this one above all, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And that doesn't just mean putting up with difficult people in our lives. I've confessed to you that, you know, we used to, when I was a young pastor, and young pastors would get together and we'd say, How are things going over at, you know, your church? And I'd usually be flip and say, We don't have any problems. A few strategic funerals wouldn't solve. You know, we'd, <laughs> but, you know, I guess they're just my cross and I've got to bear them. No. The cross was a place of execution. It was a place where you, where you died. Um, I have a true confession. I have a big Celtic cross tattooed on my shoulder, and I sometimes wear a Celtic cross. I, I, I'm not adverse. I, I love being marked with the cross, and yet it's so easy when the cross is a piece of jewelry to forget what it's really about. I've been at dinner parties and, and overheard... Uh, one lady saying to another, what a beautiful little cross. That, wow, where did you get that? Are those real diamonds? Oh, yeah. Imagine if Jesus had died in an electric chair. What a beautiful little electric chair. Is that, you know? I mean, we don't think it's become for us the emblem of our salvation, but we forget that it was state-sponsored terrorism. What, if you were crucified, no one knew your name. You were nothing. You were nothing but something, a piece of meat to be mocked until the birds ate you and you rotted. And you were forgotten. And nobody wanted that to happen to them. That's why the disciples all ran when Jesus, they realized Jesus was going to the cross. The the women didn't. Guys, we need to remember that. The women didn't run. The guys who'd bragged that they'd go with him to death were the ones who ran. And Jesus, when he said, if anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, was simply saying that every day we need to wake up and say, I need to die to all those things in me that are not turned toward his will. Lord, help me today to die a thousand deaths so that I may have the joy of life. Because your ways lead to life. My ways, when they're resisting you, always in the end lead to brokenness and heartache and death. It's not like, oh, this is hard, but one day you'll go to heaven, so it'll be worth it. No. If you want joy today, die to that stuff that has been making your life the mess it is, and come to life in Christ. It's a costly quest, but it is, it's the only quest worth taking. And gloriously, the things we cast aside Are the things that were just breaking us down and wrecking us anyway? No, I won't tell that story. Okay. Some of you guys ask me later. I'll tell you about that. Um, Very quickly, the last two points. What does it lead to? It's not just pie in the sky when you die, it's not that at all. It's the new heavens, the new earth. God coming down out of heaven, the New Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. It's it's heaven on earth. That's what the Bible teaches, not uh, an eternity as disembodied spirits. No, it's the resurrection of the body. It is the planet, the cosmos restored. That's the picture in the Bible. And once we grasp that and know that we're on that journey, it leads to two things. First, it leads to joyful worship. What did these powerful, wealthy people do when they came probably into a very modest home? Joseph was a carpenter. Uh, Bethlehem was not. You can go there today, and you can see areas that have been excavated. It's not some great wealthy place. And yet, when they saw the baby, the one who was born King of the Jews, they fell on their faces and worshiped Him with joy. I, I love worshiping with you because there's a joy as you sing God's hand. I often, at the end of the, uh, the offertories, want to just say, play it again and let us, let us stand up and join in. But you and I need day to day in our own times of worship. Don't just do a Bible study where you're you're checking your watch and doing your notes and getting it down and, you know, praying for the family. What else do I need to pray for? I remember somebody coming and saying, okay, I'm trying to learn to pray. I was told to pray the, the acts, adoration. So, I mean, how many times do I have to say, you're wonderful, you're great, you're marvelous, you know, before I can move on to confession. And then, I mean, you just go, oh, my goodness. Baby, you're not praying. (laughs) That's not prayer. You're just opening your heart in conversation with the one who loves you, who knows everything about you, things that if, if you could confess them to yourself, you'd think less of yourself. And if your friends knew them, they might hold back a little bit from you. The Lord knows us in the depth of our being, all the hidden places, all the suppressed parts of our lives. And He loves us with an everlasting love. And once you begin to really get that, it's the most liberating thing in the world because we worry so much what others think. There's only one judgment that matters. And He has chosen to see us as we shall one day be in Christ, as we will be when we're made perfect. That's how He sees you today, no matter what you've done, no matter how deeply and profoundly you've failed and disappointed yourself, and perhaps those around you. If you're His child, He sees you that way, and if that doesn't set you worshiping with joy and gratitude, I don't know what will. And finally, deep obedience. Herod was the king of this area. He was entrusted by Rome with the power of Rome to run that area, and they were in Herod's realm. And Herod, who when he heard about the king of the Jews, realized this was a threat to him, he didn't even have what it took to get somebody to come carry him a couple miles to Bethlehem to check it out himself. Well, you go look carefully, search carefully. And come and tell me. But they were warned not to go back. And so they went home a different route. They obeyed. When you and I come into the presence of the Lord and begin to to read his word, not as some dry textbook, but as, you know, "This this is the instruction manual. He's talking to me here. He's telling me the way to live. He's telling me the way to love love and life and joy and peace. Then there should be within us just this deep desire. That's the way I want to go. That's why in the judgment scenes in Matthew, whenever Jesus talks about judgment, he never talks about doctrine. He never talks about believing him. He talks about works. And so you could look and say, well, but we're not saved by works. No, but you see to the Jews, The only way you know what you or anyone else believes is by what you do. The rest is just considered talk. So do I believe in Jesus? There's only one way to know. Am I beginning, however much I'm limping around and stumbling, and sometimes looking back over my shoulder, am I following Him? If I'm following Him, then I believe in Him. Obedience is the mark of faith, as Bonhoeffer put it, only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. So they obeyed. So there's your epiphany sermon. These astrologers, these pagan magicians whom God in His grace welcomed because they were by grace seeking. Him in His world and in His Word. And He drew them by grace to the very place where they could bow low. He'll do that for you if that's the desire of your heart. This table is set for all those who've been baptized into Christ. If, you're, if you've been baptized and you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, Then we invite you to come to this meal. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and long to love Him so much more. Come because He loves you and gave Himself for you. Hold these elements as you receive them, and we will have the words of institution at that point. Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten, he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, in his name, we encourage you to reflect for a moment, even as you have taken these elements on the fellowship into which he calls us in this meal. It is, Paul writes, a koinonia, of fellowship, in his body and blood. Father, may we never come carelessly to a meal that cost our Lord Jesus so much to set before us. But may we come with joyful hearts that he who died and whose death we remember here also rose victorious over everything that would separate us from you. And so we would begin this another year In the joy of our salvation, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the hope of the glory that awaits us.